Find a Way by Brad Hertig. Chapter 1. Round 1 When I Lost to a Power Press. My kind of normal. I grew up outside of a small town called Sherwood. Well, it's actually not a town, it's only a village. And when I say small, I mean really small. It doesn't even have a traffic light. A few years ago, there was a flashing caution light at the main intersection. But it got torn down in an accident, and no one ever bothered to put it back up. I never thought of Sherwood as anything special. It was just my kind of normal. It's in the northwest corner of Ohio, so it shouldn't be confused with Robin Hood's Sherwood Forest. Although it wouldn't surprise me to see men in green tights come through town someday. The neighboring town is called Hicksville. Despite its small size, Sherwood wasn't a bad place to grow up. I lived there with my mom and dad and three older brothers. Brian and Jeff are a couple of years older, while Chris managed to join the family a whole two minutes ahead of me. Being one of four boys was great, and it was a lot of fun growing up with a twin. Over the years, we had a thousand adventures. We spent hours fishing at my grandma's pond, hunted snakes on my parents' property, and created and raced on a mud go-kart track. And we did all the other slightly crazy things that four brothers might do. When we weren't playing hard, we were working hard. <clears throat> like our own Mr. Fixit, my dad is a do-it-yourself type, so we were always involved in whatever projects he had going on. The biggest one was when I was in eighth grade. My dad practically built our house. Even better, he let us help. We worked right alongside him, and because of him, I learned that I loved to work with my hands. I loved that I could actually build things like a house, and I even thought that construction might be a good direction for my future. <clears throat> But back then, my future felt a long way off. I was just a high school student. I went to school, did homework and chores, and most importantly, I played sports. My small town had an equally small school, and in order to field full teams, nearly everyone played sports. So, like most guys, I was a three-sport athlete. I played football, basketball, and baseball, and I loved them. All of them. I played with my friends and my twin brother. Sports kept me busy year-round, and I found I was pretty good at them, too. In my sophomore year, I started as the varsity middle linebacker on defense and broke the school record for tackles in a single season. <clears throat> for the first two years of high school, that was my kind of normal, sports, working with my hands, school, family. I was busy and life was great. <clears throat> But sometimes life changes in the blink of an eye. It was early summer and I had just finished my sophomore year of high school. After going to church that morning, my family and I headed over to my older brother's property to clear brush. It was a perfect day filled with sunshine and blue skies. While we were working, my friend Keenan called. Keenan's dad owned a factory and he was offering Chris and me a chance to work an overnight shift that night. We loved the idea of helping Keenan and his dad out while also making a little extra money. But we weren't so in love with the idea of working through the night, staying up for 24 hours straight, which we had never done. And more importantly to us, we were concerned about the baseball game we had the next day. The question was, would we be able to work all night and then sleep enough during the day to be rested and play well? After Chris and I talked it through, we decided, yeah, we can handle it. So that's what we did. Later that night, we finished up at my brother's and went home. We changed our clothes. And instead of going to bed like normal, we put on our work boots and got ready to go to the factory. I was running behind. 
and Chris was already in the car waiting for me. As I was pulling my bedroom door closed, I heard my mom in the kitchen, but I was in a hurry, and since I would see her again in just a few hours, I didn't stop. Instead of looking at her to say goodbye, I just yelled out, see you later, and headed down the hall. I joined Chris in the car, and off we went. Keenan hadn't said what we, we would be doing that night, but we weren't too worried. Because of my dad, Chris and I were well acquainted with power tools, or so we thought. After being introduced to the machine we'd be operating, I suddenly realized I knew nothing about real power. They called it a 500-ton power press. A power press is a machine that bends and forms sheet metal into parts, car parts in our case. Until that night, I didn't know much about them, but I quickly recognized two very significant facts. First, these presses are big. Many factories cut out the cement floor and bury them five to six feet into the ground. And even buried that deeply, the press can rise almost as tall as the ceiling of your school's gymnasium. Second, these machines are powerful. It takes a lot of force to shape metal, and the particular machine we were assigned uses 500 tons of pressure to form the sheet metal. You can sit in your car in the parking lot of the factory and feel the vibration every time the machine slams down. It's that powerful. And that is the machine that Chris, Keenan, and I would be operating all night. <clears throat> Since this was our first time working at the factory, Keenan's dad, Craig, trained us on how to run the machine properly. He provided us with safety glasses and white cloth gloves to protect our hands from the sharp edges of the sheet metal. He watched us for a while, making sure we were doing everything correctly, and when he was certain we were handling the job well, he jumped on his golf cart. He was recovering from a broken foot at the time, and he drove off. It was a little intimidating at first, but we quickly figured out a good system. Keenan put a piece of sheet metal about the size of notebook paper into the first station. I moved it through the middle stations, and Chris manned the final station and loaded the finished parts into a box. After the machine came down and stamped the sheet metal, we stepped up to the press, moved the sheet metal in our stations, and stepped back. Keenan would then have to turn his back to the press to reach the buttons. He would press the buttons to activate the machine, and when it was finished cycling, we'd step back up and move the sheet metal again. Our system worked so well that we started to have some fun while we worked. We talked and laughed and imagined our bank accounts getting bigger. We were going to be paid for the number of parts we made, so of course we were motivated to make a lot of parts. We enjoyed that every time the press came down and crunched that metal into a part, We were crunching out dollar signs. We even broke into song occasionally. I'm in the money. I'm in the money. Then after hearing the press come down, we'd give a loud hey and throw our hands up, celebrating the money we'd just made. But even though we were having a good time, the power of the machine constantly reminded us of the seriousness of our job. At one point that night, we actually talked about what would happen if someone got their hands caught inside the press, how it would simply obliterate whatever was inside. Of course, the question was just hypothetical for us. These presses are equipped with safety features, lasers that detect if something is in the way of the press. If those lasers are triggered, the press won't come down. And several times during our shift, that actually happened. The first time, we were really confused. We stepped back from the press while Keenan pushed the buttons, ready for the brake to release and the press to come crashing down. Except nothing happened. It was like pulling the trigger on a gun and expecting that powerful explosion, only to realize the safety was still on. 
We thought something must have broken, but thankfully, that wasn't the problem at all. Craig had taught us to spray down the parts in the press every so often to keep the machine lubricated and working smoothly. That time, the spray bottle had been inadvertently placed in the way of the lasers, so when Keenan pushed the buttons, the press didn't come down. It happened several more times, but at least it assured us the safety features were working. After a few hours, we were really getting the hang of the press. We were getting richer, and we were having a good time. It was turning out to be a fantastic overnight adventure until about 2 a.m. It all comes crashing down. Have you ever had a crisis moment, one huge moment when something slams into your life and you can't really wrap your head around it yet? But you know, you just know that everything has changed. We had just come back from a short break. We pulled on our white cloth gloves, put on our safety glasses, and got back to work. Just a couple of cycles in, though, I saw that one of the pieces of sheet metal was crooked. And I knew that if the machine pressed the piece when it wasn't straight, it would ruin the part. So I instinctively reached back into the press to adjust it. I didn't say anything to Keenan, nor did I realize that he had already turned around to activate the press. Even though this was obviously a mistake, the lasers that detected the spray bottle several times earlier in the evening were still in place, and they are there to detect any object that might be too close to the machine. Like someone standing there with their arms inside the press. However, at that moment, I somehow reached in beyond the lasers, clearing them while not being detected. The machine never recognized that I was there, and while I was adjusting the sheet metal, the 500-ton power press, the machine you can feel come down while in the parking lot, came down, with my arms still inside. The first thing I remember wasn't the physical pain. Or even a physical sensation at all. What I first remember was hearing someone else screaming. I have no idea whether it was Chris or Keenan or both. All I could think was, "Oh no, what just happened?" I started to panic, and I knew I needed help. I left the press to go find Craig. On the way, I had to look down. I needed to see how bad this really was, and it was bad. My left hand was barely there. The press had cut off half of my left hand, including the last three fingers. My index finger was severed almost completely in two. The last half of it was dangling down from my hand, and it looked as if the threads of the white glove were the only thing keeping it attached. It was hard to comprehend that that was my hand, but then I looked at my right arm, hoping it was better. It wasn't. It was worse. Half of my arm was missing. It simply ended a few inches beyond my elbow. What I was looking at seemed like a bad dream. The entire time I was fully aware and conscious, but everything slowed down. Any sound I heard had an echo, like it was reverberating around me. It felt completely surreal. Craig heard the screaming and started our way. When he saw me and realized I was missing my hands. He rushed towards me, his eyes wide with shock. I'm sure the sight of me must have blown him away, but all I remember was how calm he was. He very quickly and firmly said, "We need to get you to the hospital." And as fast as he could manage, he led me to his car. As we hustled out of the factory, I had a brief moment of hope. 
I knew doctors had been able to reattach severed limbs pretty successfully, but at the same time, I remembered our conversation earlier that evening. A 500-ton power press had just come down on my arms and hands. There wasn't going to be anything left to reattach. We got to Craig's car and we sped off to the hospital. The aftermath. The whole thing felt like a really bad, weird dream, a nightmare. The car ride to the hospital was short as we cautiously but hurriedly sped through red lights on the way. It was the middle of the night, so the town was dead, but that only added to the eeriness of what was happening. Only moments before, the power press had come crashing down on my arms, but in that car, there was enough time to think, and the full force of what happened hit me. Physically, the pain was starting to grow. It was a burning sensation, as if the ends of my arms were getting hotter and hotter as we got closer to the hospital. But even that sensation wasn't as intense as I would have expected. The real pain was internal. I tried to wrap my head around the fact that this was real. It happened, and I couldn't change it. I knew instinctively that my future was going to be very different than what I had imagined. My mind went immediately to sports. And I started hysterically saying out loud, I'm never going to play sports again. I'm never going to play sports again. Being a three-sport athlete, this was a big deal to me. I was the starting middle linebacker, but now I didn't have hands. During the drive, I started feeling deep regret. I so desperately wanted to go back in time just a few minutes back and undo what had happened. I wanted to go back to three buddies working the night shift, talking about guy stuff and looking forward to our baseball game the next day, but I couldn't go back, no matter how badly I wanted to. I was overwhelmed by an extreme sense of desperation and helplessness. We finally got to the local hospital. Craig parked right next to the building. He jumped out and hobbled around the vehicle to open my door for me. Then he went into the hospital ahead of me and began explaining the situation to the first person he met at the desk. I could tell there was discussion, and he didn't seem to be getting anywhere. Then I walked in. The nurse screamed out, pointing to the room around the corner and telling me to go there. She started calling for assistance on the radio as I went and sat down on the bed. Quickly, someone rushed in and had me lay down. More and more people came, and they all seemed frantically busy. A nurse used large scissors to cut my t-shirt from top to bottom. They started poking me with needles in different places and running lines from one place to another. More and more doctors and nurses arrived, and it felt like I was in the middle of a beehive. Oddly, the pain still wasn't overwhelming. I just remember a lot of chaos going on around me. At one point, I saw Craig sitting on another bed across the room. He looked like he had seen a ghost. He was pale and rubbing his chin with his left hand. It was obvious the situation was weighing heavily on him. Eventually, though, somebody pulled the curtain between us. The hospital wanted to save all that they could of my hands. So they called the factory and requested that someone retrieve any salvageable pieces of my hands that might be left in the press. Like the incredible brother that he is, Chris went back to the press to see what he could find. I don't know about you, but I think we need more brothers like him in the world. Unfortunately, there wasn't much to find, just a few fingertips sitting outside the press. 
Chris didn't miss a beat, though. He picked up what he could and put them in a clear plastic baggie for the hospital. At the hospital, the medical team slowly got me stabilized. The urgency lessened, and there were fewer and fewer white coats running around my room. I didn't know it at the time, but they were prepping me to be transported. I was going to be life-flighted to a larger hospital. Two important things happened as I laid there, waiting to be moved. First, a guy with long white hair and glasses came and knelt next to my bed. I didn't know him and he didn't know me, but he very calmly started talking to me. He was asking about my life, the things I liked doing, and my family. I don't remember what all he said to me, but I do remember that his words and presence were very comforting and calming. I never found out who he was, but I'm thankful he was there for me. Second, my parents showed up. They had gotten a phone call in the middle of the night that one of their sons had just been seriously injured in an accident and were told to come to the hospital right away. They didn't know if it was Chris or me or the extent of the injuries. They just got there as fast as they could. I can only imagine how awful that car ride was for them. Seeing them deal with the reality of the accident was hard. Just a few hours earlier, I had said goodbye without even taking the time to look back. Now they were coming to the hospital to see me without my hands. They were brought to where I was, and someone told them everything that had happened. We were all crying together, and I felt I had let them down. They had given me the best, healthiest start to my life that they could, and now I had ruined it. I'm sure they didn't feel that way, but I did. Still, their presence was incredibly comforting to me. I remember asking my dad about sports, and he said, let's just get through this right now. It was exactly what I needed to hear. Finally, the helicopter arrived. As I was being carted to it, I remember being disappointed. This was going to be my first helicopter ride, but it wasn't the exciting experience I had hoped for. I was loaded into a tiny space in the back. No one else got on except the pilot and a nurse who barely fit in the back with me. The helicopter spun up and took off while my parents drove to the hospital where I was being taken. Whether I was just tired or the medication got to me, I fell asleep shortly into the trip. When we landed, I woke up to find my parents waiting for me. Even though I was the one actually flying, they had arrived first. Maybe I should have ridden with them. I was awake enough to talk to them as they unloaded me from the helicopter, but I don't remember any of it. What I do remember was waking up in an unfamiliar hospital room a few hours later.